Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's an old story about a young man in Montana who bought a horse from a farmer for $100. The farmer agreed to deliver the animal the next day. Problem was, when the next day arrived, he reneged on his promise. I'm afraid the horse has died, he explained. The young man said, well, then give me my money back. The farmer said, sorry, but I can't do that. I spent it already. The young man thought about that for a moment, and then he said, well, okay, then bring me the dead horse. What are you going to do with the dead horse, the farmer asked. I'm going to raffle it off, came the reply. You can't raffle off a dead horse. Sure I can. Watch me. I just won't tell anybody he's dead. Well, a month later, the farmer crossed paths with this young man again, and he asked him, whatever happened with that dead horse? The young man replied, I raffled him off. I sold 500 tickets at $2 a piece and made a profit of $998. Another farmer's, farmer's curiosity was piqued, right? Didn't anybody complain? The young man said, just the guy who won, so I gave him his $2 back. Now, would you, say, would you say that that young man was a guy with dangerous potential or someone who was potentially dangerous? He totally stole a lot of people's money, right? But you smiled when you heard the story because he was so clever. Well, I did too. History is filled with uh, con men and con women. Con for confidence because that's what they do. They gain your confidence. They don't earn it. They gain it. People who have made uh, dubious names for themselves, uh, albeit at the expense of others, and sometimes when they get caught, even to their own demise. Everybody's got a different list of their top picks, but there are a few that, that show up on almost every one. One of the biggest kinds of all time is our own generation's Bernie Madoff, who cost investors $50 billion. A lot of people lost a whole lot of money, including their pensions, and one of the biggest Ponzi schemes of all time. Charles Ponzi, the pyramid scheme's namesake, uh, was promising clients a 50% profit in 45 days or a 100% profit in 100 days in a pyramid scheme that paid early investors with the, the money stream generated from later investors. When federal agents arrested him in 1920, he was making $250,000 a day. Scottish con man Arthur Ferguson made a... Uh, uh, is famous for selling Big Ben in London for a uh, down payment of a thousand pounds. Then he sold Buckingham Palace to American tourists for down payments of two thousand pounds. That worked so well he came to America in 1925. On this side of the pond he made a deal to sell the White House to a Texas rancher for yearly payments of one hundred thousand dollars. He was finally busted when he tried to sell the Statue of Liberty to a, a visitor from Australia who called the police. One of my favorites, though, is Victor Lustig. Uh, Victor Lustig. He was a European charmer who's best known for selling the Eiffel Tower. In 1925, he read in Paris newspapers that uh, there was a huge financial strain on the city to just maintain it. And that was true. It, would build, it was built for a World's Fair and only expected to have a 10-year lifespan. Um, so there was a problem. So people knew about that. So he pretended to be a government officer, an official, and he sent invitations to six scrap metal dealers offering to discuss its sale. He told them the upkeep costs were, were so outrageous the city wanted to sell it for scrap. He actually signed a contract with one of those dealers and then boarded a train to Vienna with a suitcase filled with $70,000 cash. The buyer was so humiliated he wouldn't complain to police. 
Now, criminals don't always come up as bad guys, do they? Like Robin Hood, for instance. He was revered by the common folk for giving to the poor. But what? But first he had to steal from the rich. Or the pasty little cubicle person in our gospel lesson this morning. He was a guy in charge of accounts receivable. Nobody ever paid him much attention before, as long as the company stayed in the black. Then the economy shrunk, and his boss took a closer look at his job performance. What he found didn't please him. Why, this man was throwing away pencils that still had an inch of, of lead in them and perfectly good erasers. And he was throwing away perfectly good paper towels in the restroom that could have been laid out to dry and reused. Okay, I'm reading between the lines here, okay? The guy was so wasteful, he was a total waste. And so the little, the little man in the cubicle got pink slipped. Get your books in some kind of order by the end of the week and clean out your desk, he was told. You're fired. Now the little wheels in his wasteful little head began to turn. What am I going to do? I'm in no physical shape to do manual labor. I refuse to stand in a corner with a sign that says, need money for cheap wine. Fire me, will they? And so he doesn't let any moss grow under his chair while they're out cutting his final check. He makes plans for his future. He begins calling in people from some of the biggest firms uh, that they do business with, the biggest accounts, people who are indebted to his boss. The plan is to make friends and make them fast. So he asked the first one to arrive, how much do you owe my master? And the man looks at him and says, well, like, you don't know. Uh, I owe, uh, you have my promissory note for 100 measures of oil. That's right, he said, here it is. Uh, take it and sit down and write me a new one for 50. And remember, who's the man? He would indeed be the man. Uh, the word translated here to owe is used elsewhere in connection with being behind in your rent. And so there's probably a pressing reason why a very large bill like that would be still outstanding. And the, office, or the offer would be so tempting. Now, that's the way it went the whole day. Uh, feathering his own nest with new job prospects, making friends. Uh, that's what Jesus seems to call it, making friends. And that just sounds odd when you read it, doesn't it? Because it comes off more like stealing. And to top it off, his boss finds out, and he's commended for his shrewdness. He's still fired, but he's commended. That's the part of the story nobody gets. Why the boss slaps him on the back all the way out the door, but doesn't have the cuffs slapped on him at the curb. One idea is the most obvious one. The man is a crook. His so-called generosity causes his boss 50 jugs of oil, 20 measures of wheat, and who knows what else, but he doesn't end up homeless. So if the point of the parable is that crime can be justified, that the end of evil justifies the means, then point taken. But Jesus would never condone stealing. It's one of the thou shalt nots. There's another view that takes into consideration the boss's goodwill. Managers like this guy in the first century would often earn their salary by receiving a percentage of the debt they collected. Uh, different commodities may have been tagged with different percentages. We don't really... Uh, know the details on that, but what if the man was simply giving up his commission in order to make friends and his boss wasn't losing a thing? Sure, 50% sounds like an overblown commission, but maybe the guy had padded the price to bump up his numbers. It was his department to run. It would help explain the story, but it might also be, you know, way off track. The key to really understanding this parable isn't in the numbers anyway, it's in the Lord's application. See, the man isn't commended for his shady dealing. He's commended for his quick thinking and dealing with the problems of his immediate future. The twist in this parable, the real point, is to get us thinking about how we're dealing 
with the, the, the issue of the age to come. When did you start planning for your future? Okay, many financial experts suggest that the amount of money you should have in an emergency fund is anywhere from three to nine months of expenses. Yet many people have no savings at all toward emergencies, their golden years, or even their kids' college. According to the latest data, nearly one in five Americans didn't save any money at all in 2021, and half of those who did put something away uh, put away less than $5,000. And poor money management isn't a new problem. 24% of those aged 65 and over live in families that depend on Social Security benefits um, for over 90% or more of their income. And if you get to the front of that line after my generation is finished with it, you're liable to find an empty well. Now, you can call the ex-manager in Jesus' story a crook or a con man, but he's got a pretty good plan for his future going for him, even if it's just recently hatched. And for that, he's commended. Problem is, his plan is just for the short term. So what about the long term? You know, we spend most of our planning time, if we spend any at all, on what's going to happen from the time we're 65 years old to maybe 85 years old. Uh, the CIA 2022 World Factbook says that in the United States, on average, men are on borrowed time after 78.3 years, and the ladies after 82.8. It's not as good as Monaco, maybe, but uh, if it makes you feel better, we're nearly 30% better than Afghanistan. 80 years might sound like long-term thinking to some of you, but, you know, what about an 80 light years? Uh, that's long-term thinking. That's eternity thinking. And that's where Jesus wants your head this morning. See, he says we operate a little behind the eight ball as sons of light, as Christians, when compared with the sons of this world, with unbelievers. Uh, anybody in business knows exactly what I'm talking about, how much harder it is to operate on Christian principles than with little or no principles and, 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 and still stay competitive, still stay profitable. And who among us hasn't been taken advantage of at one time or another because we would you know, rather give someone the benefit of the doubt than distrust and suspect them from the get-go. Jesus said, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The word for generation also translates eon or age. It means the time we're living in until Jesus comes back. Now that's just the way things are in our fallen world. Remember what he told his disciples? He said, behold, I send you out as sheep among the wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. He wants us to begin using the things of this dark world in our really, really long-term thinking. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, he says, so that when it fails, they may receive you or welcome you into the eternal dwellings. So is he back to stealing again? No, it can't be. That's not okay. When Jesus talks about unrighteous wealth, he's not talking about ill-gotten money. He's talking about it in terms of how it corrupts. There's something about money that eats away at a person's goodness, isn't there? It's the nature of money to corrupt and control us. You know, look at all the stories of, of, of lottery winners that just went bust. But before long, we, we have money, we begin to live for what it can buy. But you can't serve two masters, Jesus says. You can't serve God and money. One of them will always end up being despised. You know, remember this. The master who gives the money is always more important than the money he gives. The master who gives the money is always more important than the money he gives. 
So how does one go about using dirty, unrighteous money in a righteous, God-pleasing way? By making the friends that Jesus talks about. Not the kind of worldly friends who help the dishonest manager cook the books. No, think out of this world, friends. Think the next age. The sentence structure here is a passive way of rendering God as the agent of welcome. It means that when the money runs out or when money no longer has any value where you're going, you'll still have God. Now, use your money to make friends with God to gain his confidence, not for your salvation. Okay, that's free. Jesus paid that entrance fee for us on the cross with his own shed blood. But if you begin to think about how you use worldly wealth to lay up treasure in heaven, then you're going to begin to think about feeding the poor and sheltering the homeless and doing God's work in a way that not only takes care of people's physical needs in this life, but also introduces them to Jesus so that he can get a spiritual home ready for them in the next. You have to learn to use the wrong things in the right way to earn God's confidence for the future. You can only take it with you if you send it on ahead. The most famous confidence man in the Old West was a man named Jefferson R. Soapy Smith. After facing financial ruin in the Civil War, his Georgia family moved to Texas seeking a fresh start. It was while growing up in Fort Worth that, that Soapy somehow took a wrong turn, walking straight into the shadowlands of crime. He became a small-time bunko artist, uh, shell games, three-card Monty, anything he could cheat at. He put together his own gang of con men, and he eventually found success in that life as the crime boss of Denver, operating uh, saloons and gambling halls. His nickname comes from his most famous scam, the prize soap racket. Soapy would pick a busy street corner, set up his tripe and keister, that's a tripod with a suitcase on it, looking, suitcase looking thing on top, pile it high with cakes of soap, and begin proclaiming its wonders. As a curious crowd gathered, he would take out his wallet and he would begin wrapping some of the bars with bills, ranging from $1 to $100. And then all the bars would be wrapped in ordinary paper and mixed up. He sold them for a dollar apiece, as much as $20 in today's money. And almost at once, a shill in the crowd would begin shouting that, that he'd won, jumping up and down, waving the bill, and, and even offering advice to people on how to beat the soap salesman at his own game. Of course, a little well-practiced sleight of hand uh, assured him that uh, no one except his own men would ever purchase a, a, a bar that was wrapped in, in a winning bar. So halfway through the sale, he would announce that the cake wrapped in the $100 bill um, was still remaining. And as soon as he did that, a frantic auction for the remaining, hours, remaining bars would begin. Soapy Smith uh, had found his dubious place in American history. He and his soap gang thrived until the social reformers of the 1880s forced them to seek new opportunities in new places, among them the frontier of Alaska, where they took over the town of Skagway, the entry point for uh, hopeful gold prospectors with pockets full of money. Soapy even opened a fake telegraph office. Since there wouldn't be real telegraph wires in Skagway until years later, Soapy's wire ended at the wall. But he still, newcomers were charged $5 to send a message back home. But the real deal was in the friendly poker game that was always going on in the back room. The strangers would be invited to sit in and would always leave behind a sizable donation. Now, Soapy was gunned down at the age of 38 by vigilantes bent on revenge over a card game gone wrong. Interestingly, his last words were, my God, don't shoot. 
Ironic, considering that shot in the heart moments later, Soapy found himself standing before the God he'd just invoked. See, God wants us to be wise in our dealings in this life, but always aware of the danger of being corrupted by it, always with one eye on the prize in the next. So take a lesson from the dark side this morning. Ill-gotten success in this world is tempting, but it's also fast and fleeting. Now, be shrewd with the blessings God has, has entrusted you with in this life, but use them to lay up treasures in the next. Now, we've heard the gospel call. You know, we've been led by the Spirit from the darkness of the lie into the light of Christ. But how many of us here this morning, you know, once stood at the fork in our own road through life, one prong leading into the, the shadows of the lie and the what-ifs, the other into the light of the sure promise? We chose light. Our future is set, but there's so many out there still, so many still to be reached, still standing at that fork themselves, still contemplating between the easy way and the right way. And Jesus died for their sins too. That's no con. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that